At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's the Son of a Butch podcast. We come to you every Wednesday. This week, talking about last week's Ryder Cup with a major champion, uh, someone that's been on three Ryder Cup teams, Justin Leonard. Um, he was doing TV last week for NBC Golf Channel, so wanted to kind of get his views on everything. And I think he's got some great things to talk about. And we take a deep dive into kind of everything that happened, not only on the European side last week, but on the US side as well. Uh, but before we get to that, let's go ahead and talk about AG1. You know about them if you've listened to the pod. If you've tried them, you probably love them. If you haven't, the obvious question is, what the hell are you waiting for? AG1 is a daily foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. I've been drinking it literally every day, whether I'm on the road, in the travel packs, or I am at home. I initially gave AG1 a try because I'd heard a lot of players and physios talking about it here on tour. I'm getting older, so it's important for me to feel my best and make sure my nutritional bases are covered every day. Listen, I'm on the road a lot. Um, when I'm on the road, it's hard for me to eat as well as I'd like. I don't eat a lot of vegetables. That's just full disclosure. It's just not my thing. So AG1 is an opportunity for me, not only on the road, but for me to get a lot of the stuff that I'm not getting in my day-to-day diet. And I think a lot of people are in the same boat as me. And if you're looking for a way to kind of knock everything out in one go, AG1 is the way to do it. I've noticed a huge, I mean, I'm sleeping better. I feel better. I've got more energy and um, my digestion, everything across the board since I started taking AG1 has really, really changed. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs to go with your first purchase. I carry them on the road with me, and it has really been a game changer in being able to look after my body while I am on the road. You can go to drinkag1.com backslash CH3. That's drinkag1.com backslash CH3. Check it out. My guest today, Justin Leonard. Justin, you've done basically everything you can possibly do in the game of golf. You won an NCAA individual champion, USAM champ, players champ, major champion, played on three Ryder Cups. Um, so who better to talk to about the absolute European beatdown? And you were doing commentary um, for TV at in Rome. You've had a couple of days to... Kind of process it. What the hell? If you're on the American side, what the hell happened in Rome? Well, to me, it looked like, you know, it looked like a bunch of the guys hadn't played in a while. It looked like there was rust, and sure enough, they hadn't. I mean, you had nine guys that didn't play a tournament for five weeks. And I understand coming off the FedEx Cup playoffs and all that, 
uh, it's nice to have a little bit of a break. Um, you know, Roy McIlroy and John Rahm had the same schedule, and yet they fit in uh, the Irish Open, the BMW. Uh, it, it just it really looked like it wasn't until Friday morning or afternoon when uh, the U.S. side was actually really ready to play. Um, you know, Max Homa played Fortinet. Um, Brooks played the week before uh, the Ryder Cup in Chicago. Um, Justin Thomas played Fortinet. Um, you know, other than, you know, Brooks and, and Scotty's kind of, you know, performance in that, that uh, four-ball session, um, you know, I think Brooks played okay. Uh, Max Homa probably was the star of the U.S. side. Uh, he played great, and Justin Thomas played, you know, much better than he was leading into it. So I think um, maybe a little bit ill-prepared. I think, um, you know, you could say that that the cap. I mean, the captain's picks did not have a good record. Um, I think it was four wins, twelve losses, and a few ties. Um, you know, when you have six captains picks, uh, those guys have to perform. Um, you know, you look at at Rory, John Rahm, Victor Hovland, kind of the the three stars for the European side. Um, I, those guys, uh, somebody, I think you told me yesterday, they won 10 or 10 and a half points. Yeah, Rory goes, Rory goes 4, 1, and 0. Oh. John Rahm goes 2, 0, oh, and 2. And Vic goes 3, 1, and 1. Uh, I, I I did a preview of the of the Ryder Cup last week, and I I said that one of the things that I think the Europeans historically Justin have done better in the last thirty years in the U.S. in the Ryder Cup is their stars. They get points and a lot of points from their superstars, right? So you've got Rory getting four points, you've got John Rahm getting two points, you got Vic. They are the three horses. They are the three studs on that team, and. Rory lost one match and Vic lost one match. Otherwise, their three superstars dominate and really, really show up for the Europeans. That that seems to be a theme, Justin, over the last 30 years. The last time the U.S. won a Ryder Cup on foreign soil, the Belfry in 93. Uh, you were on the 97 Ryder Cup team at Valderrama, Tigers' first one, where Tom Kite was the captain. Why do you think, Justin, and then you've been on two winning Ryder Cup teams, Brookline, the miracle at Brookline, and then Valhalla when when Zinger was the captain in 2008. Why do you think, having done it and watched it for 30 years, why does it? Why are we struggling so much away from home? It's, uh, I think some of it, especially here the last, uh, you know, 2018 in Paris and and then in Rome last week, uh, being able to set up the golf course is is a huge advantage um, with all the, the data and analytics. Um, I mean, it was a very similar setup, I thought, to Paris. Uh, narrow fairways, really deep rough. Uh, the greens weren't like icy, glassy fast. They were just good, and the, their speed was around 11 on a step meter. Um, they set the golf course up, I think, to kind of take away – the maybe the, the 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 style of play that you see more in the U.S. these days, which is hit driver down there as far as you can, because they don't deal with a lot of you know four and six inch rough. Um, hit it down there as far as you can. It, you know if it's in the fairway, great. If it's not in the fairway, that's okay too. Um, all the data suggests that, and I think that 
setting, being able to set up the golf course where you have to hit the ball in the fairway. Um, they, you know, they also took a lot of wedges out. There weren't a lot of holes that were driver wedge or three wood wedge. Um, the short holes that would have been played that way, they moved the tees up even further to where now they're drivable. Um, and so I think that's another advantage of the U.S. They're used to hitting so many wedges that being able to control the golf course, set it up the way they want to. Now, I think, you know, in the, a week or so leading up to it, um, the captains have no more say in it. But leading up to that point, um, and I'm sure, you know, Eduardo Molinari, who was an assist vice captain on the European side, he's very much in the analytics. I think he was he was probably paramount in helping set up the golf course, analyzing both teams and saying, here's our strengths. Here's, you know, the American strengths. Let's try and neutralize the other side as much as possible. Conversely, when you come to the States, you know, you look at the setup um, at Hazeltine, very little rough, uh, hit it down there as far as you can. Um, whistling straights, very little rough, you know, pound it down there as much as you can. So um, having that, and then like you said, it's the blueprint's been there for the European side for a number of years. Before Hovland and Rom and, and McElroy, it was Poulter, it was Westwood, it was Darren Clark. Before that, it was Monty, Seve, uh, you know, just on and on, Bernhard Langer. So they've always had this really great kind of top-heavy group. And then their supporting players, um, you know, think back to like a Jamie Donaldson or a David Guilford or, uh, you know, this year, Bobby McIntyre and, and those things. You know, those guys, they raise the level of their game to where it's not just the stars, those kind of supporting pieces that may not be involved every year. Um, you know, they get a point and a half or those kind of things. And that's really, truly the difference. Every time the U.S. gets beat, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe, there's always this kind of pick everything apart, try and figure out what went wrong. And one of the things that I think a lot of people think is they say that it means more to the Europeans than it does to the U.S. And I don't necessarily agree, but it does seem like they have this ability, Justin, to raise their game in a way that maybe the U.S. team doesn't. And what I mean by that is, I mean, the running joke, and, and you've, you've seen this, if Sergio Garcia, if Tommy Fleetwood, if some of these players putt, Victor Hovland, if Vic putts the way he putted last week, he should be winning majors every single year, right? If you look at the way a guy like Sergio Garcia putted throughout his Ryder Cup career, he should have more major championships than he does. And we were all talking that it just seems like the Europeans for this one week seem to raise their game to a completely different level that a lot of these players don't play on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, look at Ian Poulter. I, I mean, you know, yeah, he contended in some major championships and he won certainly more on the European tour than he did in the U.S. But I mean, in the Ryder Cup, he turns into an absolute beast. And then, you know, Scotty Scheffler, number one player in the world, um, has been in and around that number for the last two years. Um you know, really struggles. And um, it, it's, I can't tell you why that necessarily is. I don't think the Ryder Cup necessarily means more to the Europeans than it does to the U.S. I think that 
you know, every year it's this this talk about, you know, on paper, the U.S. should win and all these things. And it just it doesn't seem to happen that often. Now, you know, you go back two years ago um, to Whistling Straits and it was a pretty dominant performance. And I think that's kind of what we expected from that team versus, you know, maybe a, a an overmatched European side. But um and I, you know, honestly, I thought that might carry forward for for the next, or certainly for for this year, um, and maybe going forward. And then all of a sudden, you realize when Luke Donald was making it picks, man, that guy's a really good player. Wow, that guy's a really good player. And then you look at it and you say, okay, Adrian Moronk, who was probably number thirteen. Okay, he's won three times in the last twelve months, and he won the Italian Open at Marco Simone last spring, and he was left off the team. So, you know, that just shows how deep the European side was, much deeper than I'd expected. Um, and it's, you know, being that favorite, I don't think you want to play in that favorite's role. It's really hard. And the Europeans have, have really embraced that underdog role of, hey, let's get out there and play free and we've got nothing to lose kind of attitude. And I think the U.S. side needs to try and adopt that to, to find a way to to like just let it go a little bit more. Having been on three of these, um, Justin, what's it like? I mean, how important is the captain in this? Because, okay, so you guys, you go over 97, Tom Kite's the captain, you guys lose. Then Crenshaw and Zinger are kind of two of the captains. I mean, Zinger especially um, was kind of the guy that kind of, from a U.S. standpoint, kind of brought this idea of this pod system, right? To where you're going to get a group of players within the 12. You're going to have your group. They're going to give you a vice captain. And I think that's been really, that was new. That was something that hadn't really been done before. And then you've got, you know, Ben Crenshaw, who's the ultimate old school kind of wake up the echoes, kind of, you know, iconic, you know, this tour, kind of just a, a very soulful guy. So from a captain standpoint, because obviously everyone's going to look at Zach as a captain and say, okay, he made a bunch of mistakes. When you've been on the three Ryder Cups that you've been on, what's what's that like as the player captain and how important is, to, is the captain to you as a player on these teams? Well, I mean... Three very different styles uh, and, and personalities and captains. You know, Tom Kite was uh, very much by the book, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. Um, that being said, I, you know, I, I had three different partners that week. Um, I played a match on Saturday afternoon with Tiger Woods. I hadn't seen Tiger all week. Didn't play a practice round with him, all those things. So, And we were down, too, so you kind of throw the cards up in the air and say, well, I've got to change things up. You know, Ben is very touchy-feely. Um, there wasn't a lot of organization of that week either. Um, the pairings were a little bit random. And then Paul brought this kind of organization and continuity to it where he tried to take some of the uh, the mystery out of it and and really said, okay, here's your pod. Here are the multiple – here's the chances of guys. You're going to play with one of these three players. And he couldn't tell you which match in those things, but – you know, and so within our pod, like we are able to take some ownership to it and and really get involved in the process. And I think that's the thing that that captains have tried to bring going forward is there's so much going on for the week. Uh, it's such a busy week. 
that try and take some of the the doubt out like who who am I going to play with or when am I going to play and so I think that's something that that these captains you know Jim Furyk, Davis Love, now Zach Johnson have tried to emulate of okay let's try and and bring a little bit of organization to the chaos so that guys understand okay I'm likely going to play with these two or three players um and so you can kind of you know a little bit more ahead of time. Now I understand like you lose all four sessions on a on a you know Friday morning, you may have to mix things up a little bit. But I think having some sense of especially for the players maybe who haven't been there before, okay, this may not be your partner all week, but you're gonna play with one of these two or three players. Um I, I think that's kind of been the idea going forward, but for whatever reason it just didn't work last week. This thing was over on Friday morning, right? I mean, you go, oh, I mean, yes, we have seen comebacks before. I mean, it happened in the Solheim Cup where the, just recently, the European Solheim Cup team, they lose the first four matches and they went on to win. But there was definitely a feeling that after the morning matches going, you know, throwing up the bagel and for the US, getting no points, it definitely seemed like, I mean, Europe was in the driver's seat and it seemed like, we never really recovered from the start that we got off to in the morning. When you look at those pairings um, from that Friday morning, we've got, let's see, we've got Scheffler and Burns, Homa and Brian Harmon, Ricky Fowler, Morikawa, Xander and Cantlay. If you could go back and would you send those out as a captain or would you say, okay, maybe we make some changes and maybe we play it differently well i think you know the the one pairing in that that i i really kind of hesitate about is the first one is scheffler and burns um sam burns yes he won the match play back in the spring that was in april and he really hasn't played that well since uh to put him out in in alternate shot i think uh i think it was a risk and but i mean the guys just didn't play well i mean the, the european side was up you know two and three up through after five or six holes. And I know those first couple matches and, and it just, it was a blowout. And I'll, I'll say that, that the U S had a chance Friday afternoon um, to, you know, if they go out and they get three, one in the afternoon, uh, I think they'd feel pretty, they would have felt pretty good about themselves going into to Saturday morning, but losing the 18th hole, the way they did in a couple of those matches, I think, was it the afternoon? It was European side one one, and then the other three were ties. So you know the U.S. only getting a point and a half. They needed three points in the afternoon. So really, to me, it was Friday night. It was like, okay, this this is kind of done. I mean, it was at what a six point, yeah, six point deficit at that point. It was six and yeah, it was six and a half to one and a half after the after Friday. So five points. They're, they're just. There need to be more of a sense of urgency, I think, on the U.S. side Friday afternoon uh, to, okay, let's chip away at this. It's four points, um, get it to two points by Friday night, and then all of a sudden I think you feel pretty good going into Saturday morning. Um, but it's just time and again, it's the European side. They make a putt. Whenever they got in trouble, they chip in, those kind of things, and, and there was nothing happening like that from the U.S. team. Yeah, we were, the U.S. were down, they were down five points after, on Friday night. They were down five points on Saturday night and they lose by five points on Sunday night. Um, Why do you think our record in 
alternate shot. I'm American. I call it alternate shot. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's alternate shot for for me. It's best ball alternate shot. Foursomes, four ball. I can't figure any of that out. I'm not smart enough. But why do you think the U.S. struggled so much in the alternate shot format, and the the Europeans have just flourished historically in that system? And then we always play good in the singles. We always tend to play good when it's best ball, but in the alternate shot. Over the last 30 years, we just get run out of the building by the way the Europeans play alternate shot. It's, I wonder what's happening in practice rounds. I mean, yes, I'm over there, but I've got to do my work on the golf course and things like that. Um, I watched the guys play a little bit on Thursday. Uh, I caught a few holes of each group with the Americans, and they weren't. Yeah, we saw, I, we, yeah, we ran into you on, on 16. Um, you know, are they playing some alternate shot in the practice rounds? Um, I, I, you know, I think they're so busy trying to get their game ready, especially for the, you know, the, the nine guys who hadn't played in five weeks, um, to sit there and only hit half the shots is, you know, they feel like, well, I'm not really able to get my game ready. So, um, you know, how much of that is happening? I don't know. And I don't know how much it's happening on the European side. Um, I think the golf course setup has a lot to do with it. Just, you know, an alternate shot, you have to be hitting fairways. Uh, certainly on a place like Marcus Simone with rough as deep as it was. You just, you have to be playing from the fairways. And for the U.S. side, that's never been a real priority um, because of the way the golf courses are set up and maintained week in, week out on the PGA Tour. I was doing, I did some commentary for Sky and I was doing, um, I was in one of the the sessions with Andrew Coltart and Rich Beam and Andrew was saying off camera, it was Friday morning. He was like, they're professional golfers. I know they don't play this type of golf all the time. And he was saying the same thing that you were saying. It just seemed like in the alternate shot, the Americans were struggling to get the ball in play. Um, on Sunday, I went out and followed Brooks and walked around his match. And one of the things I said to Brooks before he went out with uh, against Ludwig Alberg, I said, listen, just don't give him any holes. Make him beat you with either a birdie or a par, but don't get out of the holes. And, and on Sunday, in the singles match, Justin, Brooks played so much more conservative than he did in the other two matches he played. I mean, he, he was he was hitting some driving irons off of some tees. He was hitting a lot of three woods off of some tees. That wasn't what he did in best ball and alternate shot, and he did it in the singles, and he won easily, right? I mean, he cruised. He didn't have any problems. He looked totally in control. Is it hard then as a player, Justin, to adapt on the fly when the golf course kind of demands that you do that? And I, I know the mindset, right? Because I, I'm walking all the practice rounds with all of these guys. And I'll be honest with you, in the in the three practice rounds that I walked, most of the guys are just hitting, the U.S. guys, they're hitting driver everywhere on a golf course, as you said, very similar to the the setup at Golf National in Paris. That setup in, in Rome last week maybe didn't necessarily set up for hitting driver all the time because it seemed like... If you're watching TV, I just kept seeing an American with a seven footer for a half for par, you know, an eight footer for the half, a 10 footer for the half for par, right? So that means you're out of the hole and you're up against it before you get to the green. 
Right. I mean, look at the first hole. I mean, the, the I, and I think both teams were hitting drivers there, but you know, it, it was, it was set up for something right to left, which not many of the guys really play that often off the tee. Um, hit a three wood, put the ball in play. I mean, all three of the first three pairings in the U S all hit it in the right rough. Now you've got a tree over there. That's an issue. You can't get to the green because the rough's so deep. Um, I, you know, I think they're just so used to playing a certain way of pushing the ball down there as far as you can uh, that, yeah, it's like they struggled to adapt. And finally, like you said, Brooks, you know, said, look, I, thanks to you, I'm going to get it, the ball in the fairway, whatever that takes. And even if I'm hitting a, you know, a seven iron versus, you know, your opponent's hitting a nine or a wedge, at least you're in the hole. Uh, it better that than hacking a sandwich out 50 yards short of the green and trying to get it up and down. So, um, again, I, I think a lot of that just goes back to, uh, you know, they're used to playing a certain style of golf um, and not making those adjustments to say, hey, look, maybe I'm not as sharp as I think I am. I need to just find a way to get the ball in play and get it on the green, like you said, so I'm not putting from 10 feet per par because – uh, it didn't seem like many of those putts were going in. I was surprised also at how many putts were were really poorly misread. Um, both teams had the had the pin sheets all five rounds uh, or all five matches. They didn't know necessarily what day they were going to be there, but uh, and you know when I was following, they were putting tees or rubber cups down to you know putt to certain holes. But man, they're just a lot of misreads putts from. 15 and 20 feet that were missed by a foot. You just don't see that very often. And so um, I was really taken back by that, 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 you know, the guys, they just didn't seem prepared at all to, to come in and play. I mean, you know, would you ever, if Brooks came to you and said, Hey, CH, I'm going to get ready for the masters. I'm going to take five weeks off uh, and just make sure that I'm rested. I, I think you would, you would talk them out of that immediately. And that doesn't, I mean, nobody does that. That's not a recipe for success. I understand taking a week or two off before, but you've got to get engaged in something. And that's where like reading putts, you don't reading, you're not reading putts when you're at home playing your, you know, your home golf course or something like that. Or even during a practice round, you're not sitting there grinding over and reading putts. That's why it's important to play tournament golf so that you really understand where your game is you're going through that whole process. And, you know, I, I think that's certainly what was lacking. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So the obvious question, Justin, is you know, where does the U.S. team go from here? I mean, after, after what happened with Tom Watson and Phil Mickelson at Glen Eagles in 14, there was a task force. And... You and I were talking yesterday that you felt like in the last 10 years, some things have gotten better with the U.S. setup. But what are the things coming out of another pretty significant beatdown in, in 2023? 
where does the U.S. team go from here, and what do you think they need to do um, for the next matches at Bethpage Black to not just rely on the fact that the U.S. is more dominant at home than they are away? What do you think needs to happen, and where do you think this is going to end up? Well, I, I think there have been some positive changes in giving the players uh, more of a say. There's more continuity from year to year for captains. Um, and seems like now the President's Cup has kind of become a, a part of that. But what are the next captains? I mean, Phil Mickelson was certainly going to be a captain. I doubt that's going to happen. Um, you know, Tiger is obviously going to be a captain. Uh, and he wasn't in Rome, but I think he would have been um, you know, had it not, you know, having his surgeries and things like that. Um, and I'm sure that he was involved to some extent, but I think the players have almost have too much power when it comes to uh, putting the team together. Six picks is a lot of picks. Um, and I understand, you know, it's, I think seven, eight, nine were all chosen. Um but that's – and I think that the players had a lot of, of say in who was picked. Um, I think that, you know, maybe a captain like Tiger is going to say, you know what, I appreciate that, but I'm going to go this direction. Um, I, I think, you know – and look, all those guys in the team room, they're all very good friends of mine. They've all been doing it for a, a long time, and they've put a lot of, of effort and time into the Ryder Cup and the U.S. team. Um, but I think it's time to, you know, maybe bring, try and usher in some new guys that you think are going to be captains down the road and bring some different personalities into that room uh, that, you know, I mean, a, a guy like Tiger, he's going to stand up for what he thinks and not necessarily listen to, you know, what one of the players um you know, their ideas or things. So I think all that's taken into consideration, but I think the players almost have too much power in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, you saw Justin Rose, you know, they paired in they paired Justin Rose with probably on paper the weakest player for the European side in Bob McIntyre. And he goes 2-0 and one. He gets two and a half points, right? Um, he was a guy that I think a lot of players thought was a guy that would struggle. Um, and in the press conference afterward, Justin Rose said, listen, the Ryder Cup isn't about playing with your friends and playing with people that you're comfortable with. The Ryder Cup is about playing for your country. Um, so to be a good Ryder Cup captain, in your opinion, the criteria I think is changing, right? Because historically, the only way you could be a Ryder Cup captain for the U.S. is you had to be a major champion. And I always thought it was really interesting that we tended to put so much focus on you had to be a major champion to be a Ryder Cup captain. The Europeans never had that, right? Yes, Seve had won a major. Yes, Bernhard Langer had won a major. But Monty never won a major. He was a great captain. Nick Faldo won a boatload of majors. He wasn't a great captain. Paul McGinley never came close to winning a major champion. He, to me, was an amazing captain. In your opinion, Justin, what do you feel like you need and let's just let's just make it specific to the american to be a good american captain what do you think are the traits and characteristics that that you need to have i think a you need to be willing to to listen 
um, to vice captains and to players to a certain extent. And then you also have to be able to um, not be afraid to bend or hurt somebody's feelings. Um, and I'm not talking about like calling them to say you're not on the team, but saying, you know what? I appreciate your input. But as I just said, like, but we're going to go in this direction because I have a vision for this and this is what we're going to do. And that's it. Nothing more needs to be said. Uh, I think it's that way when it comes to making the captain's picks. I think it comes that way when it's when you're making pairings. Um, just because a team has worked very well in the past does not mean that in that given week, that's the right team or they're the right teammates for each other. You know, there's some diplomacy, but there's also needs to be a, a bit of an ego where it's like, well, OK, but this is what we're going to do. And that's it. And nothing more needs to be said. That's why I think Tiger's going to be such a great captain when he decides to do it. He's got the respect of the players enough. And I think all the players have respected captains. But to say, you know what, that's fine. I appreciate your thought. But this is the direction we're going to go in. And I think there's guys like, you know, Brant Snedeker. I think he needs to be brought into the mix uh, because I think he's that kind of guy as well. Um and but yeah, what like we need to start identifying these next captains down the road. Um, and you know, Stuart Sink was there. Does that mean he's a future captain? He's certainly worthy of it with his you know resume and, and all that. Um, you know, but then again, Matt Kuchar was an assistant 18, he wasn't involved in this. So, um, you know, I think it's starting to prepare those next captains. And I think you know, if there seems to be a little bit of a uh, some symmetry between the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup. Like the President's Cup is a great place to bring a, that new captain in and get him around some of the guys that's in that room, whether it's, you know, Furick or Stricker, those kind of things, and, and kind of have them experience what that process is like. And so that the things that have worked well since 2014, they can continue, but it doesn't mean like, okay, this is how we have to do it. it it's not yeah, it's been better at home, but it's not working on the road. You know, you can always try and bring new things into the mix. And and I think a lot of that just starts with with peoples and the captains and even the vice captains and their personalities. Do you think, Justin, that we sent our best team? Do you think that those were the 12 best players to win that Ryder Cup? No, I don't. I, I think the fact that Keegan Bradley wasn't there and Lucas Glover weren't there uh, tells you that it wasn't the 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 twelve best players, best Americans. Um, I think a lot of it was okay pairings, and then you know I think a lot of it was okay. Who do the guys want to be around for the week? Um, and um, no, I think the fact that those two were left off the list um, just shows you how much control the you know the 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 automatic qualifiers had in in the room. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at that golf course, and and again, I, I think you're you're correct. It it had a very similar feel to Golf National in Paris. The way that the Europeans set the golf course up, you would think with the fact that we weren't the U.S. team didn't seem to drive the ball as well. A guy like Lucas Glover, who's one of the best drivers of golf ball on the planet, who hits the golf ball as straight as possible, you would think he would be a great partner in alternate shot to where you know he's not going to miss the fairway right yeah i mean that that's you know that's pretty obvious and then 
just the passion that Keegan Bradley has and, and how much he wants it. He's, you know, you might say, well, it's almost too much for him, but man, it certainly wasn't Medina, how well he played with Phil. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think those are the two obvious ones in my mind. Um, you know, again, I'm not in the team room. I don't know exactly what's going on, but from the outside looking in, um, no, I don't think we had the best team we could have put on, on, uh, on the golf course. You mentioned analytics. Um, Nico Darris, who's part of John Rom's performance team, who I've had on the podcast before. Um, I was with him yesterday. He was showing me some messages between himself and Eduardo Molinari from three, four months ago. Um, from what I saw yesterday, John Rom knew who he was going to play with in every session months ago. And everything was about what that player did. I looked at text messages yesterday between Eduardo and Nico, and it was fascinating. But these are from before the summer. This was in May when they had an idea of who they were going to get on the team. This balance between data, analytics, and stats, and real-world kind of playing golf, how do you think moving forward we balance that in this team environment because I, I mean, I I've, I've seen a bunch of the euros analytics. I've talked to a lot of them about the process and it, it seemed very different than what the U S was doing. I mean, it really did. It seemed a lot more cohesive. It seemed a lot more thought out. And I think it, seemed to me, Justin, a lot more explained to the players on the European side. So there was a buy-in for the data as opposed to just, here's a bunch of data, you're going out with that guy because that's what the stats say. That's very different than if the people telling you what the data is saying, okay, this is why this is going to work. Right. Um, You know, I think the U.S. side relies a lot on data as well. And, um, you know, when, when all goes well, you just stick absolutely with the data and, and, you know, you keep writing it out. And, you know, when you show up and you win the first session four zero, uh, man, you just stay right in your rhythm and what you're doing and all that. Um, what the data doesn't show is like, okay, you might have somebody who's, who's had certain performance characteristics over the course of a year or two, and they show up a week and all of a sudden, um, you know, they're not driving the ball well or they're not putting well or those things. And then like all of a sudden the data, like it, it, it steered you in a direction that maybe, uh, you know, you can't go because somebody's just not playing well or they're not, you know, they're struggling at the time in certain aspects of their game. So um, I know the U.S. relies heavily on data as well. But when all of a sudden you show up and you throw up a goose egg in the first session, um, you know, sometimes you have to, you've got to pivot and you go, okay, well, this isn't working. We've got to go other directions and those things. So again, I, you know, I think back to the Oakland A's and, and to me, that was kind of really the first really driven data driven um, team aspect in sports. And, you know, yes, it got them to a certain point. Um, but in the end, you also have to have a little bit of a feel for the game and understand, okay, I know the data may say this, but I need to go in this direction a little bit. So 
again, I'm not in those rooms. I, you know, when everything is going well, I think that the you just stick with the data. I think, you know, obviously for the US side, probably got thrown some curveballs and say, okay, we need to change things up here because you know, this player is not really performing up to their, you know, what the data says and those kind of things. The performance from John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Victor Hovland, and Tommy Fleetwood, uh, it was it was something. I mean, the golf that that Rory and John Rahm are able to just almost kind of will. I mean, it does look like that to me that you just know Rory is going to go out and get it done. You just know John Rahm is going to go out and get it done. Just where do you think that comes from? Because, I mean, I watched it up close last week and you watch the performance of Rory. You watch the performance of John Rahm. I mean, they looked last week like men amongst boys with the way they were playing the game. Yeah, I think, you know, Rory's had a, a couple of disappointing Ryder Cups. He didn't play great in France. Um, he really struggled at Whistling Straits. And, and you know, I remember the uh, the emotional interview after singles match and how he broke down because he felt like he let the team down. Um, I think for Rory, I think John Rahm and Victor Hovland helped Rory because he doesn't feel like he has to carry the team on his shoulders. He doesn't feel like, you know, However, he goes is how the European side is going to go. He knows he's got a couple guys there that, you know, any given day could beat Rory McElroy. And so um, having that kind of support and by the way, they're all in the top four in the world. Um, I think that's freeing for Rory. Um, and I think also the expectations um go down a little bit for him from the outside because he does have John Rom. He does have Victor Hovland. And and um it'll be fascinating to see at Beth Page um, you know, if those three guys are able, if they're able to perform like that at Beth Page, um, I don't know. Does the US even have a chance? Um, I would say they do, but like we've talked about, it is harder to play on the road. Um, because of the fans, because of the golf course and all those things. But um, I was, you know, I think Rory was really upset by his play in the last two Ryder Cups. And I think he found a way to find a sense of freedom, um, knowing that he's got a great supporting cast. And, you know, and just, so I mean, Victor Hovland obviously played well. He won the FedEx Cup. Um, you know, those guys all played well. I think they had seven players finish in the top 10 at Wentworth at the BMW PGA, which, by the way, is essentially the players championship for the DP World Tour. So it's a huge event. Um, you know, all of those things, I think, um, you know, that just created this wave of confidence for the European side. And, um, you know, every all three of those guys play great. And, you know, like you said, Justin Rose stepping up, Tommy Fleetwood, obviously. Um, it just Tyrrell Hatton goes undefeated. I mean, go wins three points. He, Tyrrell Hatton won three and a half points. That guy is an absolute bulldog. I mean, it's easy to look at Tyrrell Hatton and look at his persona and you know, you laugh at all the things that he does and how bad he can sometimes act on the golf course, which I love. I mean, I'm a huge tear off. I mean, I think it's hilarious, but I said to him walking into the, we were walking into the team hotel on Saturday night. And I just said to him, I said, man, it, it is fun to watch you play golf. That guy, 
I don't think Tyrrell Hatton gets enough credit for the type of player he is because he that kid is legit. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny. You think of like, okay, he with his, you know, combustible attitude <laughs> and John Rahm, who is also very, you know, uh, combustible, you know, those two playing together, like they didn't have a lot to complain about really because they played so well. Um, you know, does that work in front of a, a New York crowd? I, I don't know if they play the way they did, it might, but um, you know, those two just they play great together and and um, you know, John said it's not just their attitudes, it's their outlook on the game that's very similar. Um, you know, even though I mean, down, I'm sure they probably shared, you know, beard conditioners with each with each other. I mean, they were just so in sync all week long. Um, and it was, it was really fun to watch those two. How good do you think Victor Hovland can be now that, you know, he's done a lot of work with Joe Mayo, the short game, which was a absolute complete and utter liability before. Um, I mean, his short game was compared to the rest of his game was the short game of a 15 handicap relative to everybody else. And you know, it was bad, and he has turned that into a strength. Um, his attitude, he's always got a smile on his face. He has really become a a fan favorite. But I just continue to be so impressed, Justin, with his game. And I was saying to his caddy on Sunday morning, uh, Shea Knight, if you look at Vic, his iron shots – Look at how many, when you watch Victor Hovland play, how many of his iron shots are past the hole. Three, four, five steps past the hole, which means, you know, Tiger was the greatest because everything just finished pin high. Vic's actually going past pin high and then rolling it back to to four feet. And I just, I don't see that really right now, what weaknesses does a guy like Victor Hovland have? He doesn't have any now. And like you said, I mean, he admitted a couple of years ago, uh, he was quoted in a TV interview and say, I just suck at chipping. <laughs> and now, like, I was watching him hit these, like, spinny kind of flop shots right of the ninth green, the par five. Uh, Penn was in the back part of the green, landing these things on a down slope. And I was watching him hit this shot up in the air off a very tight past Palom lie. Um, putting spin on, and I thought, okay, this is like this is night and day difference, and that's the difference. You know, Victor Hovland, I think, with his short game, was a you know around maybe tenth best player in the world um, because he hit it so good, um, a pretty good putter, not a great putter, but now that he can chip the ball, um, he has no weaknesses, and I think he's he's going to be number one player in the world. Uh, in the next year or so. Um, he's got that kind of game. He's got that confidence now uh, because he's done this stuff on such a huge stage between the FedEx Cup and the Ryder Cup. Um, you know, there's no limit to how good he can be. 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. We've talked about Zach Johnson and, you know, the fact that the U.S. didn't get it done. Luke Donald, captain for the European side. Give me a gauge on what you feel like was part of the formula that that he got right. I don't know that there's anything he didn't get right. Um, From... His picks, I mean, yeah, you thought, wow, he's left Adrian Moronk. Like, how do you do that? Well, uh, you can't second guess that now. I mean, I think Adrian Moronk would have done fine and all that, but these 12 players he had in the room completely bought into what he was doing. Um, he's done, they've done a nice job. I mean, you look at, at you know, live and how it, you know, whether the, the DP World Tour decides to bring some of those guys back into the mix, but they lost their next four or five captains between, you know, Ian Poulter, Henrik Stenson, who was the Ryder Cup captain. Um, uh, Lee Westwood. Sergio, like those are their next captains. So who have they brought into the room now? You know, Francesco Molinari, um, Eduardo Molinari, uh, Nicholas Colsarts. I mean, you know, Thomas Bjorn, you know, from a couple of years ago in France was, you know, was there to kind of help bridge that. But they've got to identify these new captains. I wouldn't be surprised at all if I'm sure they're going to try and get Luke to do it again in in at Bethpage. Um, whether he wants to do it or not is the real key. And, and you know, being an away captain, there's not quite as many responsibilities and duties. It Look, it's still a full time job. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if Luke says yes, because it seemed like how much he enjoyed the experience. He talked about this being um, really the pinnacle of his career. Um, You know, I would I'm sure they're going to try and talk him into it. Um, It'll be interesting to see whether he decides to do it or not, or if he just wants to, you know, take his playbook and hand it off to the next person. You talked about the vice captains that he's got, right? I mean, obviously, you've got Olathebel as a vice captain because he's kind of the OG uh, next to Seventy. He is kind of their spirit animal, right? Oleth- Jose kind of embodies everything that Europe is as a Ryder Cup entity: the spirit, the passion, the joy, the camaraderie. I mean, to me, when I see Jose. You see that part of his career more than you see him as a two-time Masters champion, right? You see the Ryder Cup as his kind of identity because he was so great in that. Thomas Bjorn had a great Ryder Cup record as a player. He won as a captain in Paris. But there's guys in that backroom staff that aren't necessarily superstars like the guys on the U.S. side from a backroom staff. Yes, Francesco Molinari won a major champion uh, championship, but you've got Eduardo, you've got a guy like Nicholas Coastguards, who you wouldn't think would be vice captain's pick. Do you think there's something in that, in that you're picking guys that aren't necessarily rock stars, right? They're not 
necessarily guys that you know by one by their first name, right? I mean, if you look at the Ryder Cup kept, I mean, we've got three of I mean, we've got Freddie, we've got Davis, right? You know them by first names because of everything they've done. Do you think there's some anonymity in the captain, the vice captain choices that the Europeans choose, which actually helps them because it seems less about their persona and it's just more about them as a person. I, I do. I, I think they're, you know, you mentioned earlier, Paul McGinley. Um, there were probably people in the U S that had never heard of Paul McGinley. Um, now he had a really nice career, but captaining the Ryder cup team was the pinnacle of his career. Um, you know, I, I think that because the U.S. dominated major championships for so long, uh, the U.S., you know, and then you had Ernie Els and you had VJ and Ratif Goosen and, and, you know, guys from Australia. But, but there was a bit of a drought on the European side when it came to major championships. And so it seemed like those Ryder Cup captains, you know, and thinking of McGinley and Thomas Bjorn, like they maybe didn't have the, the resume as an individual that we kind of seek out in the U.S. for our Ryder Cup captains, or we kind of expect from our captains. But what you accomplish individually has nothing to do with what kind of leader you're going to be in the team room, um, what kind of, you know, the example that you're going to set, the, um, you know, those two have very little in common. So you don't have to be a, a a three or four time major champion to be a great captain. The two don't really have anything to do with each other. What you need to have is, is the respect of the players so that they will buy into what you're trying to do. Um, you have to have, be willing to listen to the players and their thoughts and, you know, the analytics and all that, that team, but then have the confidence or ego, if you will, to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I've taken all that in. This is my plan. And then it's not questions. Then guys buy into it. And um, I, that's not always the easiest balance to strike. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of respect for Luke Donald in the world of golf. And certainly by, you know, him as a player, he never won a major, but he reached number one in the world. And he reached, he reached number one in the world. He wasn't a great driver of the golf ball. Exceptional iron player unbelievable putter and around the greens okay so you could say that this guy he's got a lot of heart um maybe because you know you know him being from england and everything you don't necessarily always see the personality he's a bit more reserved um but you know that he's got a lot of heart by his playing career uh so you know like where's that heart from the american side we know zach johnson's got heart he's almost a similar player to luke donald uh, not the longest, but, you know, finds a way to get things done, you know, and he's won a Masters and an Open Championship. Um, he certainly has the resume for it, um, but is that resume always the most important thing? I don't think so. So the obvious question then, Justin, is if you have you been asked to be in the Ryder Cup setup? Because I think that given the way that you think, given the way that you kind of live your life. To me, I think you'd be an amazing captain as a Ryder Cup. Would you do it? Have you ever been approached? I, I would do it. Um, I, I was, you know, when that task force was formed um, and I wasn't in that room, uh, to me, I thought the writing was on the wall. Um, 
I was asked to be an assistant a few years ago. Um, I didn't feel like it was the right time for me to really put in the time that I felt to do that. It was at a critical point in a season where I hadn't played that well. And um, I just, I didn't think that was my end to a possible captaincy. So I, I declined the offer. Um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but I can tell you sitting here, you know, at 51 and, and playing on the PG tour champions, if I was approached at this point to do it, I would absolutely be involved. Um, but I, again, I may have missed my window a few years ago. I mean, it's strange that there's windows, right? That, okay, I, I missed my window. And now because I missed that window, I can't, I can't be considered again. I mean, to me, that just doesn't make any sense, right? You've got to look at people that, you know, it can't just be the same, as you said, it just can't be the same people, right? There has to be some ability, I think, on the U.S. side to somewhat pivot and go, okay, we thought we were going to go in this direction. We just got smoked by five points again on European soil. Um, we got to try something different, right? Because something's got to change. I agree. I mean, it, it's, you know, historic, like you said, it was a, to be the U.S. captain, you need to be a major winner. And it was always somebody between like 45 and 50 years old. Um, and, you know, so you could kind of identify the next captains, but I don't think that's, that's necessary now. I, I think, you know, you wouldn't want to go too far away from, uh, you know, to get a, enough separation where, you know, the captain maybe not know the players as well, but, you know, Davis was a captain, um, you know, he was captain twice, obviously, and, and the second time he was pretty well into his 50s. So I don't, I think that formula's kind of dissolved a little bit. And then obviously Steve Stricker had never won a major championship, uh, him being captain. So I think you certainly have to have people who've played Ryder Cup and understand what that is like. Um, but I think there's, there are some good options. Um, maybe outside of that kind of window that we've seen historically, um, you know, the captains have kind of come from. I think we've got a good idea uh, based off of some of the guys that the Europeans got into uh, this setup, right? Uh, Ludwig Alberg, um, Hoygaard, you would think that those guys are going to be guys that are going to kind of be a part of that. Um, who do you think from a U.S. side in two years, um, who are you looking at to make that team? Who are you looking at from a U.S. side that you think, okay, because two years ago, I mean, nobody, nobody would have picked Ludwig Alberg to be on a Ryder Cup team. And the kid was playing college golf three, you know, six months ago. I mean, he was playing, he was in a team bus, playing for Texas Tech, carrying his own bag. And six months later, He's playing in a Ryder Cup. I was saying to Brooks, um, we were joking, how many guys over last weekend that are currently playing college golf were telling everybody that they they that would listen how they beat Ludwig in, in, in this tournament, how they beat him in that tournament, how they play better than he does, and this guy's playing on a Ryder Cup team and 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 drinking champagne. So who who's who are some names that you think from a US standpoint that could step up and, and be a part of this next Ryder Cup team? Well, chances are two or three of them are in college right now. 
Um, you know, Gordon Sargent, I, I could see him being on a Ryder Cup team in, in t- two years. Um, you know, uh, Nick Dunlap, I could see him being on a Ryder Cup team. Just won the U.S. Amateur. He just lipped out a putt for 59 at a college tournament, uh, I think, yesterday or Monday. So, um, you know, there's chances are there's guys that are still in college that are going to be on this team. I think you're still going to have – there's always going to be turnover. There's always going to be turnover. It's just too competitive. Um, you know, you figure Scotty Scheffler is going to be on these teams, Patrick Cantlay, uh, Max Homa. You know, you're going to have some repeat parts, but you're also going to bring in some new guys. I mean, would you have thought two years ago that Brian Harmon would be on the Ryder Cup team and that he'd be a major champion? Um, not necessarily. And, you know, he played very well on Saturday uh, with Max Homa. And, and, you know, Max, I think, carried the majority of the load, but but Brian played some really good golf on Saturday. So there's, you know, there's, it's hard to pinpoint, okay, these players, but I guarantee you after seeing Ludwig play, um, watching him play these college players, you know, the PGA tour has done a great thing in this PGA tour university where the, you know, the leading college player immediately gets his tour card. And I think the next five or or next four, the next 10 or, or nine, they get access on corn ferry and those things. So you're going to see the stars instead of turning pro, you're going to see them stay in college for three or four years so that they can take advantage of that opportunity. Um, that's going to help the Ryder cup on both sides. Uh, but certainly I think for the U S I guarantee you there's, there's probably two, maybe even three players that are playing college golf this year that could very well make the Ryder cup team in two years. Lastly, Justin, um, you were doing TV for um, NBC. You were doing TV for Golf Channel. And I was talking, I can't remember where we were. I asked if you were playing any golf and you were like, I hate golf. I never play golf. I'm not interested in playing golf. Now, you're no, you, you've gone back to being a full-time golfer. You're playing on the Champs Tour. Um, I thought it was crazy when you told me you had zero interest in playing golf. Because as I said in the opening, there aren't a lot of people in the game that have done what you've done. I mean, you ha- you are one of those players that are very, very iconic and rare, Justin, in that, I-, I-, I mean this, you have done everything that is a benchmark for being a professional golfer. You've won, you know, my dad always says when he looks at, you know, a guy like Hale Irwin, you know, my dad always says, you know, the thing about Hale Irwin that always stands out to me, he's been good my entire life, right? He was never not a great player. You were in that boat. What was the catalyst for you to fall back in love with competitive golf and make the decision to say, listen, that's who I am. I'm a competitive tournament golfer and I want to keep doing this. Well, it was like 2014, 15, 16. You know, I was kind of felt like I was beating my head against a wall. I wasn't playing very well. Um, A lot of things and great things going on at home. Um, I probably sacrificed too much of my practice time for family reasons. And that was completely my own choice. But I just found more satisfaction uh, being with my family than I did from practicing and playing the game. So stepped away, did TV. And you're right. Those three years, like 2017 through 2020 and 2021, I played maybe a handful of rounds a year. I, I was living in Colorado doing TV. I would do, you know, two or three corporate events a year um, and might, you know, hit a few balls the day before. So I kind of maybe looked like I was knew what I was doing. 
But, you know, Luke, our oldest son, started playing golf during COVID because it's about the only thing you could do. Um, all of a sudden, I was about to turn 49, and I thought, well, if there's a chance I want to play, I need to start getting back into it. And I, I kind of fell back in love with the whole process and starting to work at it and finding little things. And I was taking the things that I'd watched from watching the best players in the world and trying to maybe incorporate that into my own game of maybe being more aggressive in those things and and pushing the ball further down there. And so I just really kind of love the process. I think getting away from my own game and watching the best players in the world, it, it inspired me in some ways. And so, um, you know, I played, I worked my events for NBC and Golf Channel last year. I snuck in four different events after I became eligible in June. Not that I played any good, but I thought, you know what, if I could devote all my time to this, I think it's something that I'd really enjoy. And so I've enjoyed getting back into it this year. I've played, you know, I don't play every week. I play about every other week. And so, um, but I've, I've had lot, a lot of fun with it. And some of it's been, you know, falling into a couple of, of, you know, habits that I've had in the past, whether it was watching the scoreboard a little too much or, or, you know, oh, I'm hitting it pretty good. Maybe I don't need to spend as much time at it today. Those kind of things to, you know what, really, I need to be ready to play each and every week. And it's a different kind of focus. It's a different mentality. Um, but it's something that I've really learned to embrace. My family's embraced it. They enjoy watching me play golf. Um, they don't come to a lot of tournaments, but, you know, they watch on TV and those kind of things. And also... They see the work that I put in when I'm at home. It was hard for them to see that in television. Um, you know, doing TV, yes, you do a lot of reading and those things. And the weeks when I was working were extremely busy, but I had a lot of free time. And so another thing is like, I want to model for my kids what hard work looks like. And I wasn't necessarily able to do that in television or they couldn't really see it. But now that I'm playing again, they can see the work that I put in, not only in the golf course, but in the gym, taking care of my body, you know, doing things to get my mind in the right, you know, the right space in order to compete. And I've just, I really enjoyed all the things that I've learned trying to apply that and, you know, some new wrinkles into my game uh, that I would say some things that I wasn't able to do, um, you know, later in my regular PGA Tour career that I'm able to do now. I'm hitting the ball further. My training has changed quite a bit. Um, and you know, just really enjoying the competition is fun. The guys are great and it's, it's more friendly, but when it comes down to it on Sunday, it's the same feelings. It's the same feelings of trying to win a golf tournament, trying to beat people. And I, I really, I didn't realize I missed that until I got back into it. And, um, you know, that's really what drives me now. Well, I can't thank you enough for talking, uh, to me and I am going to put it out there. Justin Leonard. Ryder Cup captain. Let's 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 get the ball rolling. It started here. So when it happens, you can say this was this was the tipping point and the catalyst to to get get the name in the hat. But I'm telling you, I think you could do a hell of a job. And uh, I'm pushing. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna get buttons, Justin. <laughs> Justin Beth Page. Justin, I'm just gonna hand them out. <laughs> Thank you, Claude. I appreciate. It. Always appreciate your insight and. Um, Okay, if, if it happens, um, I'll, I'll be sure and take care of you in some way. <laughs>
I just want to drive one of the carts. That's it. If you if you get there, just give me the cart driver job. I saw a lot of guys doing that last week. I think I'm good enough to drive a cart somewhere and just drive it and, and make sure everybody's got water. The job is yours. <laughs> Great talking to you. Take care. So that was Justin Leonard. And um, I thought Justin had some really good stuff to say. And listen, I, I think that anytime the U.S. side gets beat in a Ryder Cup, there's always kind of this postmortem of trying to figure out what happened. I thought that he gave some really good insights as someone who's been on the team before. He's been on a winning side. He's been on a losing side. And listen, I, I think that the caliber of players that the U.S. has, um, Beth Page, I think they, on paper, I think, again, because it's the U.S., because it's Beth Page because of the crowd. I think they'll probably go in as the favorites again. But as we just saw, um, I think you can throw a lot of that stuff out of the window. And as I said, players play, the captains, yes, but the US got they just got outplayed. And and you can you can try and figure out, and that's what everybody's trying to do. But ultimately it came down to the Europeans made more putts, they chipped in, and they got the job done. The U.S. didn't. We'll see at Beth Page in two years if that's different. Um, if you're an American fan, you hope so. And if you're a European fan, you're hoping that um, maybe they do get Luke Donald to, to come back as captain and see if they can dominate. But um, it was a fun week. Not the outcome that the U.S. wanted, but uh, Ryder Cups are always amazing to be a part of. Son of a Butch comes to you every Wednesday. We will see you next week. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.